Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. The precious faces of 19 little children killed in cold blood in yet another school shooting are etched into all of our minds today. The agony of the parents and the questions about why the unthinkable continues to happen over and over again in America. Here in Canada, we have significantly stronger gun control laws, but it has not always insulated us from gun crime. The federal government has pledged to do more about gun control, but there have been questions about the effectiveness of the proposed measures and whether enough is being done to hold those who commit crimes with a firearm accountable. Joining me now is Justice Minister David Lametti. Thank you so much for joining us today, Minister Lametti. It's nice to see you. Obviously, tragic circumstances that we're talking in, though. Yeah, it, you know, look, I, I, I grew up near Buffalo, and so that that was a, a tragic set of events. And then what we saw in Texas, uh, again, your, your heart goes out to the people who are, who are suffering um, those tragedies and, and certainly were there in solidarity as, as the people of Canada. And it's, it's obviously apples and oranges between Canadian and American gun law. Very different up here, far harder to get a firearm. Your government has made additional changes to make that more challenging. You're talking about bringing in uh, more. I won't get into the public safety angle as much with you because I know that's your colleague, uh, Minister Mendicino's job. But I do know one thing that Toronto police are asking for and other police forces have been tougher bail conditions for people who are charged with a firearms offence. Is that something that your government is looking at? Well, we did we did major bail reform. Uh, it was started by my, my predecessor, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and then I, I finished it when I got named minister under Bill C-75. So there were a number of different bail reforms brought in there, and we're still... We're still uh, following those as they work through the system. Um, certainly, we're always open. I'm always open as a Minister of Justice with, with the, you know, the responsibility for the criminal code uh, to, to look at ways of making the system better. So I'm certainly open. Uh, but as I said, we, we're, still, we're still watching how that reform on Bill C-75 is working itself through. Another question that has come up is whether there should be longer, tougher sentences for gun-related crimes. And I know that uh, your government disagrees with mandatory minimums. You're removing that because you say that it is disproportionately affecting Black and Indigenous Canadians. But what about tougher, longer sentences for people who are involved in, uh, convicted of crimes involving a gun, and in particular trafficking guns in from the United States, which is one of the biggest sources of illegal gun crime, pardon me, illegal guns, obviously the crime's illegal, here in Canada? Well, look, that's certainly an option. We're talking about two different things here. Minimum mandatory penalties are, are you know, they're at the, the end of the scale where there, there isn't, a, there isn't a, often a, uh, a public uh, safety issue at play. Maximum penalties, serious crimes, they get punished seriously. Uh, in the previous parliament, in addition to the, the C-22, which was then the minimum mandatory legislation, we had C-21, which did increase uh, a certain number of maximum penalties uh, for these kinds of gun-related offences. And certainly that option is, uh, is still on the table moving forward. Is that something you're looking at imminently? Because I know your government is planning to potentially bring in legislation as soon as tomorrow. Is is are these items among that legislation? Look, I can't I can't obviously preempt uh, what uh, what my colleague Minister Mendicino is going to uh, is going to table. Uh, there is a notice on the order paper, and so uh, 
that's all I can say to that. But certainly, uh, because it was in a bill in the last parliament, uh, which which died on the order paper, I think it's fair. You, I think it's fair to say that that these kinds of things were discussed again. The majority of gun crime in Canada involves handguns. Your government has talked about allowing municipalities to ban them. Why not do that as a federal government and put it into the criminal code? Why leave that on mayors? It seems like we have trouble stopping the guns coming in from the U.S. How would we stop them from moving between cities? Well, look, we, we certainly have taken measures at the borders. Uh, we certainly have taken measures against uh, against trafficking as well as against uh, gangs and, and gang violence uh, in the course of our in the course of our administration. And Mr. Mendicino has led a number of talks. You, you, you've alluded to the promise that we made in the last electoral campaign to work with municipalities. Uh, as uh, as an option, again, I'm, I'm not going to preempt uh, what Minister Mendicino uh, um, uh, has in, in, in as a matter of cabinet confidence. Uh, but I think I think it's fair to say that this is on the top of the prime minister's agenda. It's on the top of Minister Mendicino's agenda, and it's a very very serious uh, commitment that we made to Canadians. You are a member of parliament from Quebec. There's two very controversial bills there, of course, the bill banning people wearing religious symbols uh, in the public service and then Bill 96 as well, which would affect people who have uh, are unilingual, unilingual Anglophones or speak another language. A lot of people are saying this will disproportionately target refugees and immigrants who come to Canada with limited English and no French. They only have six months to learn it before they're banned from having access to public services in another language. Uh, your government has said that you stand up against things that are discriminatory, and yet it seems like you're so reluctant to challenge these laws from Quebec in court. Why is that? Well, first of all, I announced uh, I announced uh, last week that when the Bill 21 case, if and when the Bill 21 case gets to the Supreme Court of Canada, we will be there uh, making arguments, and uh, and I've outlined our discomfort, and and the Prime Minister has as well. Uh, with the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause, the notwithstanding clause, we many of us remember the debates of when it was, was implemented with with the constitutional change in the early 1980s. The notwithstanding clause was meant to be the last word in a dialogue with uh, between the, the legislature and and uh, and the courts. Um, it wasn't meant to be the first word. And when it is the first word, it precludes not just political debate, but it also precludes judicial review of the substance of it. And it effectively eviscerates, guts the um, the structure of the charter. With respect to Bill 96, I, I have to emphasize that as a federal government in the constitutional structure that we have, um, I, I have to act within areas of federal jurisdiction. And I've said from the beginning with respect to Bill 96 that we would be vigilant in protecting the rights of Canadians uh, that that are under federal jurisdiction or, or in the constitution. Um, or in the charter and and we'll continue to do that obviously there's a challenge with bill 96 in the sense that the whole thing is 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 wrapped around the notwithstanding clause again and again we share that same that same uh concern about the preemptive use of that clause but certainly i'm watching carefully with respect to the implementation of that act how it affects the constitutional uh rights linguistic rights of of quebecers in the courts for example um uh, search and seizure rights um, rights of Indigenous peoples, inherent rights of Indigenous peoples, and language rights of Indigenous peoples. So those all fall within federal jurisdiction. And I, uh, I am waiting to see how the law is actually implemented uh, in order to see if there are charter or, or constitutional violations there.
Minister Lametti, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Joe Biden is meeting with the families of the school shooting victims in Uvalde, Texas today. There have been 27 school shootings so far this year alone in America. In Biden's address last week, the president lamented the failure of Congress to pass what he calls common sense gun laws. Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with it and stand up to the lobbies? To better understand the political climate on this issue, I'm joined by Atlantic staff writer and commentator David Frum. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Frum. I think that thank you that why question is the one that so many Canadians yeah. feel to, to the core of their being. Why is this the situation in America? Um, if you put the question to a national referendum vote, do you want to ban the AR-15 rifle, yes or no? Uh, you'd have, according to most polls, about 52% who would say yes but 42% who would say no. Um, this is a 50-40 question. Um, American public opinion is pretty strongly in favor of some measure of, of control. So it's not a question about American culture or American attitudes. It's a question about the American political system. Why do the 40 win? Why do the 50 lose? And why do the 40 win and the 50 lose? Well, the American political system is not representative, and it's not representative in any random way, it, it favors certain kinds of views over others. It's tilted toward rural areas, it's tilted toward wealthier areas, it's tilted toward the smaller states, and it's tilted toward the more rural parts of those smaller states. It's also hugely influenced by courts that are moving farther and farther away from public opinion. Um, sometime in June, the Supreme Court will hand down a decision in a, a lawsuit against the state of New York. In the state of New York, it is not legal to carry a gun on your person as you walk around uh, the street. Some people brought a lawsuit challenging that, and it looks like they are going to win, that the Supreme Court will say in, in every state in the country, there's a constitutional right to carry a gun on your person. So that's not about where public opinion is. That's where about institutions are. So the question you have to ask is, why do the institutions fail, not what's wrong with Americans as a people? And do you think that this is the point where institutions change? Is, is this the watershed moment? Others say, look, Sandy Hook happened. That didn't change anything. Neither will this. Some people think maybe this is the one that makes the difference. What are your thoughts? Well, let's, I have a bitter truth on that, which is people say nothing changed after Sandy Hook, but actually a lot changed. Things got worse. Many states passed laws to make it easier to carry more guns into more places, to make it easier to carry guns in public. So Sandy Hook, what happens after these massacres, these massacres are very good for the gun business. Um, the, the minority that want more and more guns, but 3% of Americans, by the way, own half the guns in the country, an average of 17 guns per person among that 3%. So that group, anytime there's a massacre, thinks, oh my God, I might be unable to get my 18th gun. And so they rush out and buy more guns. So the massacres are, are, are good for business. Um, and states respond to the massacres by tilt. That's what happened after Sandy Hook, by tilting the law more and more in favor of that 3% who own an average of 17 guns each. But if things can change for the worse, they can change for the better. Um, and I think they're... I'm not going to make any prediction about whether this is the massacre that will do it or whether it's the next one or the one after that. But I do firmly believe that eventually the forces of decency and kindness in American life are going to over, overcome the forces of grief and blood. 
Is there some sort of limited gun control that you think has a chance of making it through Congress? Is, is there any sort of middle ground that the Republicans and the Democrats can move towards? Or is this such a polarizing issue that the Republicans will vote against anything that, that changes gun control and increases it? Well, there, there are measures that could be done at the state level. I mean, one of the things that the states can do, for example, is um, restrict, roll back the laws that have been passed since Sandy Hook. Um, that you, I'm sure people have seen these images of, of men carrying rifles in, into the Tasty Freeze uh, while they buy a frozen treat. Um, you don't have to put up with that. You don't have to have concealed carry everywhere. So uh, it's, there are a lot of these micro changes that can, that can happen and that can be done by the state level. And um, I think eventually it's only a matter of time before Congress acts, too. It's also possible that this most recent terrible event may have some impact on the domestic politics of the state of Texas. And, of course, we saw uh, Beto show up, and he was very upset. He had to leave the press conference. He got kicked out. The current governor of Texas is standing by everything they've done. They're also coming uh, under intense criticism for the police response, allegations that a police tactical right. team was there for almost an hour before they went into the school. How do you see that playing out? Well, th that's, that's where it gets very powerful, because um, people are going to say the police were uh, cowardly, the police didn't respond, to which the police are going to say, well, there's a man inside shooting a high-powered firearm. What did you expect us to do? And I think that triggers a thought, well, if a man with a high-powered rifle is too difficult for 19 police officers to overcome, maybe it should be more difficult for that man to get a high-powered rifle. I, a lot of these changes are going to come in the state of Texas, not at the governor level. Texas has one of the weakest governorships in the whole country, but state legislatures. Um, that there, if you can have changes at the Uvalde level, if you can have changes at the county level, if you can have changes at the municipal level, if you can have changes in the state assembly and the state senate, um, then you can you can make some real differences. Remember, the uh, advocates of guns everywhere understand how weak their position is. That's why they try to shut down democratic debate. That's why they're trying to move this whole discussion from the legislatures to the courts. It's because they know the public opinion is not ultimately on their side. They are a militant and organized minority that depend on the indifference of the majority. David Fromm, thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you very much. With four days left in Ontario's election campaign, it looks like incumbent Doug Ford is set to lead the progressive conservatives to a second term as government. Our Ontario election panel is back to look at these final days of the campaign. Robert Benzies is the Queen's Park Bureau chief with the Toronto Star, and Sabrina Nanji is the founder of the Queen's Park Observer. It has been a remarkable campaign to watch. A lot of people thought Doug Ford had major vulnerabilities going into this, everything from his handling of the pandemic and long-term care homes to some of the scandals that had plagued his caucus, his cabinet, and at times him. He didn't perform particularly well in the election debate. He hasn't made himself available for one-on-one -on -one interviews, and at times he's been kind of MIA on the campaign trail. But none of that seems to have affected him. What do you think his secret sauce is? Well, Mercedes, I think that one reason that Premier Ford is uh, doing fairly well on the campaign is his competition is not that hard. I mean, it's it's not that tough. Uh, he came into this uh, campaign with a lead, and he looks like he has a lead as we enter the final days. So, I mean, he's been playing it safe. He has done one media interview with the, with the Toronto Star, actually, uh, my paper. Uh, but he has been largely avoiding, you know, one-on-one -on -one TV interviews, things like that. Um, and playing it safe, being extra cautious. And I think it's, it's a classic front-runner campaign. Sabrina, what do you think? 
Yeah, this obviously is a strategy that seems to be working for Ford and to even another extent, his candidates. I mean, we've seen Ford, he was up every day almost during the pandemic, the height of COVID, and he has put his foot in his mouth in the past. Uh, I mean, just thinking about that province-wide debate that you mentioned, uh, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca was kind of forced to fact check him on the fly after he was making claims about them raising the gas tax. Um, and, and it kind of has come down to risk versus reward. Uh, you know, Ford and the PCs are leading handily in the polls, and it probably helps his campaign that he's not making big, splashy headlines daily. They want him to stay on message. Uh, we saw a similar strategy with dozens of PC candidates skipping out on local debates. Uh, if you ask the PC war room, uh, they, they, they say they'd rather be door knocking, but it's also a liability, right? You can have protesters show up at these events. Uh, nurses and autism families have been going hard on that front. And then there's the risk of, you know, Ford himself going into unscripted territory, which, which we have seen. So uh, th this is a very tightly controlled campaign, but at the end of the day, it's accountability and, and the public that suffers. Yeah, I think that's it's such a big question. We've seen it at the federal level, too, where politicians simply avoid opportunities where they think they could make mistakes that could cost them, but it means less transparency, less access, less information for voters. That said, you know, there's lots of things that the opposition could have dug into effectively here, Robert. Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, may not even win his seat. There seems to be a greatest competition for second place, as you've both been saying. Why do you think the opposition has performed so poorly in this election? Well, Mercedes, one of the things is, uh, I think some people thought that this campaign would be a relitigation of Ford's pandemic performance. And for whatever reason, it hasn't been. I don't know if it's because Ontarians are fed up talking about COVID-19, as everyone everywhere in the world is, uh, or if it's because people are saying, you know what, it wasn't as bad here as it was in other places. Quebec, just across the river from where you are, 2,000 more people died of COVID-19 than died in Ontario, yet Quebec only has 57% of the population. We didn't have the curfews uh, that uh, Francois Legault put in place in, in that province, although we had very long lockdowns and our kids were out of school in the class learning for longer than anywhere else in North America. But for whatever reason, the problems that Ford had during the pandemic have not dogged him. And I don't know if it's because Stephen Del Duca and Andrew Horvath haven't been able to get something to stick or if it's because voters are saying, you know what, I'm not sure that they would have done anything that differently. Sabrina, do you think that Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath hang on to their positions as leader after this election? Are their parties going to forgive them? Or do you think that they're going to be looking for new leadership? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot at play here. Uh, you know, the Liberal Party itself, uh, they have their own internal rules where if you don't win the premier seat, which, as we know, the Liberals were decimated in 2018 with going from seven seats to, you know, taking the premier spot will be a huge feat for them. Uh, but but then Del Duca will be facing a leadership review. If he doesn't win his own seat but still forms official opposition, I think they'll still keep him around. But, of course, there will be a lot of questions about how the campaign was run. Uh, we know NDP leader Andrea Horvath, this is her fourth kick at the can as leader, uh, likely her last two. Uh, you know, there's this uh, 901 club that uh, has been forming behind the scenes where the moment polls close at 9 p.m. next Thursday, they'll be, uh, you know, immediately pressuring her to step aside if she doesn't win. So this is not going to be an opportunity for those parties to reset. Um, and to Benzie's point, I think, you know, they've had trouble capitalizing on some of the missteps the Ford government has made during the pandemic. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, during COVID, people don't really want to hear from the opposition parties necessarily, even though there was a lot for them to, um, you know, hound the PCs on because you kind of want to hear from the powers that be. 
the 901 Club. That's pretty brutal. One minute after. We just have a couple of moments left, so I'm going to do a super quick lightning round with each of you. But what do you think is going to be the biggest potential pitfall or gain this week, starting with you, Robert? Well, you know what, Mercedes, if affordability issues continue to to dog uh, the governing party, it could bite Doug Ford. Um, people are worried about the price of gasoline. They're worried about the price of groceries. So far, that stuff hasn't stuck to him. Uh, but he has presided over uh, over at, at a time when inflation is, is getting really high. It's not his fault, but it's not Justin Trudeau's fault either. And it, it's hurting the Trudeau liberals federally. So it'll be interesting to see if it if it hurts uh, the, the Ford conservatives. Thanks, Sabrina. Final word to you. Yeah, I think, you know, we're going to see a lot more candidate controversies coming out. At the end of the day, though, this is kind of inside baseball, uh, and I'm not sure if it's really going to stick to the opposition parties. I'll be paying close attention to where the leaders are headed in the last week. I think the NDP will be trying to shore up the seats they did win. Uh, the Liberals will be around the 416 and the 905. It's where they can make the most gains. Uh, and if the Conservatives are feeling confident, they'll be hanging around uh, in, you know, NDP territory, which we've seen this week uh, with, with Ford rallying in Hamilton. So I'll be paying close attention to the itineraries for sure. It'll be very interesting to see the result and if it's what's the pollsters are predicting. Thank you very much, Robert and Sabrina, for joining us. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the Westmore.